Well, we have some, uh, I guess I do at least, uh, some announcements as far as the preaching schedule. Uh, just want to let you know what my intentions are here for the next uh, foreseeable future, at least until New Year's. Uh, I was going to begin uh, the book of Zechariah uh, really either this week or next week. I'm going to put that on hold, however. I just think um, there are uh, several uh, practical uh, topics that uh, I wanted to get to before we dive into such a heavy and weighty and difficult book. Uh, the book of Zechariah is um, really a remarkable book, and I hope that you will find it encouraging and challenging uh, at the same time. Um, I know that it will take us uh, quite a bit of time to get through that book, uh, and so before we make another year, two-year commitment to a verse-by-verse, section-by-section exposition of that book, I wanted to tackle some very practical subjects. And so this will probably um, take us all the way through to, uh, like I said, until New Year's. And so that's exciting. I'm excited about that because a lot of these subjects um, are are things that you have requested that I preach on, um, such as uh, marriage and parenting and finances and family and all of the above. And so we are really going to try to tackle some of the A to Z practical uh, stuff of biblical or of Christian theology. And so um, I'm excited about that. We also have a business meeting coming up in a couple of weeks for our church. And so in light of that, um, uh, I wanted to talk about that subject today. And so the the title of these messages are going to be really simple And the reason for that is because I want it to be unmistakable what we're talking about week after week. So this is the way every single sermon is going to be structured. The name of the the title of the sermons are entitled God, in this case or this week, God, Money, and You. And uh, I don't think it can get any more personal than that. So God, money, and you, or God, family, and you, God, marriage, and you, God, singleness, and you, things like that, topics like that. I have a whole list of them, and uh, I'm excited to get to them. Really challenging uh, to just pick a topic like that and go, okay, well, kind of needle in a haystack, just look at the whole Bible and pick a place to start. Where do you start, right? Where do we start talking about finances? And so I hope that our time together will be meaningful, that you will be encouraged, challenged, and convicted, and instructed, and built up uh, as we talk about all of these practical uh, Christian topics that really have to do with a Christian worldview. So that's the direction. That's where we're headed. And one thing is exciting about that is that kind of the stress is off in the sense of, I know what I'm doing for the foreseeable future, so it's not like, you know, where are we going every week, but... um, our time in the Psalms was really encouraging. It was a very challenging for me to, uh, to, to look at those Psalms and to exposit those Psalms, and it was just a rich, rich time. Uh, and so now these subjects are, are things that, um, that I think we all need to be reminded about. I don't think that I'm going to share anything with you that you don't maybe already know. Uh, most of you guys know uh, uh, what the Bible teaches about most of these things. I just hope to remind you by way of encouragement and to, uh, to build you up and, again, to just kind of reiterate uh, what the Bible teaches about these foundational 
uh, principles of the Christian worldview. Um, that's why we're starting with finances, however, today. It wasn't because that's maybe the top of the list of the priority here, but because we have a business meeting coming, and so I thought we would take uh, absolute advantage of that uh, to focus on that today. So why don't we pray together, and then we will dive right in. Okay, let's pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the instruction of your word. I think of that scripture in Timothy where Paul says, All scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for reproof and instruction and correction. And and so that the man of God will be fully equipped, lacking in nothing. And so, Lord, we know that your word has something to say about everything that concerns us. And you have given... As Peter says, you have given us great and precious promises, Lord, so that if we do these things, if we obey in these ways, Lord, we will not be fruit, we will not lack fruit, and we will not lack any good thing, Lord. And so we just pray that you would make us complete in Christ as we look at each and every one of these subjects week after week in the coming weeks, and that you would maybe... um, Uh, direct us in a new way, Lord, that you would instruct us and that you would revive our heart for some of these so practical things that some of them are just taken for granted week after week. But we pray that you would uh, uh, kindle in us a fresh vision for all these topics and for all these aspects of the Christian life. We pray, Lord, that as we go through these practical topics that, that really our hearts would be changed, that our, our family, our marriage, our finances, our view of the Christian life would be really built up, that we would be revived in the way. And so, Lord, we look to you now. We ask, help us and give us wisdom, Lord, as we look to these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I just kind of let the cat out the bag, and so today's sermon has to do with finances, but uh, in order to do that, um, we're going to be all over Scripture today. But if there's one text that I'll draw your attention to, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Obviously a very familiar text, but one that I think is going to be really crucial for our understanding. You know this passage, this is what it says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, It says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I picked that passage for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons that I picked it is because it's such a classic text on giving. Um, it's, It's one of those passages we all know, oh, God loves a cheerful giver, and we can quote it. But I don't want to underestimate the potency of this text just because it's familiar, And that's the way it's going to be with all of these subjects that we're going to talk about. You know, doing a message on finances is always kind of risky for churches, right? Because you have new people, people are walking in, you have visitors coming for the first time, and people are like, oh, so we're talking about money today. And right away, the antenna's up, the guard is up, right? The walls come up because here's the pastor from the pulpit telling me I need to give money to the church. Well, sort of. Because, you see, we believe in what's called biblical membership at our church, church membership. And this is part of what it means to be a member in the local church. And if you are not a member here, you are not expected to give one cent 
to this church. That's my philosophy of membership, that the giving in the church should be relegated to the members. Now, visitors can give if they'd like, but we're talking about what is obligated in the Christian life. That's, the whole, that's one of the reasons why membership exists, so that we know who is it that's going to be supporting the local church. And so, therefore, I don't really have any problems preaching or talking about the subject of money. By the way, if you want to know, I mean, the last time that we looked at the subject of giving or finances, it was back when I was expositing the book of 2 Corinthians. That's why I went to Corinthians now. But really, chapter 8, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians is all about finances. So if you don't want to talk about God and money, you may not want to read Paul's epistle there because much of it has to do with that. And much of Scripture, so much of Scripture has to do with finances. I mean, think about tithing, for example. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 14 with Abraham and Melchizedek. So all the way back from the very beginning, and even prior to that, the principle of giving is even found with Cain and Abel. Going all the way back to their offering, when they brought God an offering on the altar, they brought uh, of their first fruits, in other words. They brought of their belongings, their possessions, and they laid them down before the Lord as an offering, which obviously in the history of Israel, that was taken up into Israel as a, as a nation. And so the, there's no way around the subject of money in the Bible. It's there. It's everywhere. And one of the reasons why is because God understands that there is this thing in our life that we are connected to every single day, that we handle every single day, and that we will until the day that we die. God knows that money is an essential component of life in this world. And just like with every other thing in our lives, God wants to have our heart, our devotion, our uh, complete allegiance to Him in that thing. And, and so the very first thing I want to talk about, I want to point out three things here, these three principles of giving that we need to be made aware of. Number one, the supremacy of God demonstrated in the generosity of His people. The supremacy of God demonstrated or in the generosity of His people. And really, if you would, this is what I would label the opportunity in giving, the opportunity in giving. You see, because... Finances being what they are, we are instructed throughout uh, the Scriptures that God wants to be supreme in this area. Uh, we, can, we can go point by point and look at this, but if there's a passage of Scripture I want to turn your attention to now, it's Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. So I think it just sort of ties everything in together, what we're saying, is that when it comes to finances... We have the opportunity to illustrate God's supremacy in our life. In other words, we, have, we hold our money and we live our lives in relationship to finances in such a way that we make it clear that what is supreme and uppermost in our heart is God, not money. That we worship God, not money. Because we come to realize that God is more trustworthy, He's more dependable than money. He is more satisfying and fulfilling than money, and He is more permanent. He is more lasting than money. All of these things, um, just even if you take the first one of these, God being more trustworthy, 
Look at what it says here in Philippians chapter 4. Now, now, granted, understand what's going on in Philippians. Philippians is a remarkable letter for a number of reasons. One of them is because there is not one rebuke in the book of Philippians. This is, a, this is an exemplary church. This is a church that, 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 that seemingly didn't err in terms of anything foundational. Um, but it was, it was a model church in the New Testament. And uh, they, were the, they were that in this issue of giving. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 10, the Apostle Paul talks about their commitment to support him and in doing so to support the gospel. Listen to what he says. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity. In other words, Paul is commending them that they are that they have become concerned about supporting him in, in on his missionary journeys. And he says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Boy, isn't that a lesson for us when it comes to giving? Learning to be content is the very first principle of finances, uh, so that we do not become covetous. Uh, but at any rate, he goes on, he says, Not that I speak from want. Uh, for I have learned to be content whatever circumstances I am in, knowing that he wrote this under house imprisonment. Uh, that makes a big difference, right? He says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Uh, notice the way that he sees his financial well-being in this life. Paul is saying, look, whatever circumstance I find myself in, I'm content. I don't need all of this stuff in order to be happy or to be content or joyful because his, content, his contentment was in Christ. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Notice the reference there to the Macedonians. Macedonians are kind of famous for their generosity and their giving, as we'll see in a minute. He says, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Also, I just want to quickly point out that that phrase, the matter of sharing and giving, that's an interesting phrase in the Greek. It actually appears in ancient receipts in the ancient world, where uh, uh, sharing or giving and receiving, this language was used uh, to keep accounts. And so that is a really good reason why the church should have meticulous accounts of its finances, uh, because uh, we need to be responsible. It's God's money, not ours, right? Ultimately, everything is God's, right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, for crying out loud. What are we doing when we're giving to the local church, but giving him what he gave us? I mean, everything is God's. If you can understand that, then you can hold your money with an open hand and not become greedy or insecure about your money. He says this. He says, not that I... He says, uh, verse 16, For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself... But I seek the profit which increases to your account. This is what I mean by opportunity. When we start seeing the spiritual blessedness of giving and giving with the right heart and the right spirit, as we're going to see, 
then we can illustrate that we treasure God's blessing above everything else and that that's what's important for us. He says here, I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to the Lord. Now listen to that language and ask yourself, when was the last time you saw your giving, your financial giving to the local church in these worshipful ways? That what you're doing is a sweet uh, aroma to the Lord, that it's well-pleasing. This is the language of temple worship. This is the language of the sacrificial system. And now the Apostle Paul is saying the sacrifices that God is pleased with is these, that we give with a right heart. These are acceptable. These are well-pleasing to God. Verse 19 is crucial. God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, we need to understand that Ultimately, who we're trusting with our finances is God. Uh, this is a principle that, e- that uh, Israel completely forgot. If you look at uh, uh, Hosea chapter 2, Israel had totally forgotten that God is the one that gave them everything. Their silver, their gold, their wool, their flax, their spices. I mean, think about that. Everything that they had for their domestic life was provided for them by God, and they forgot that. They thought they had to secure their income on their own. They thought that they had to sort of wheel and deal in order to make sure that they had an advantage, financially speaking, in the nation. And they forgot that ultimately God is the one who provides us everything. We also understand that Paul did not seek the gift. He wasn't just seeking the financial aid. It's much more than that. Giving to the local church is not just fulfilling a need. That is not what it's about. It's not just so that the lights stay on. It's more than that. There's a spiritual component here, and we're going to see more of that. But he learned the principle that Jesus himself was teaching about money and possessions. So, for example, look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. See, everything about finances deals with the heart of man. Jesus, knowing this, he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, you know these verses, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Wesley is famous for saying, when I get money, I give it away. He wasn't clutching on to finances. He wasn't, he wasn't insecure about his provision. He knew the providence of God would take care of him in the ministry. That's a real, listen, as I'm studying this as a pastor, I mean, this is a real challenge to me, just to trust God with, with, with God providing for me through the church. Uh, it's been really, really uh, wonderful just to meditate on these things. Challenging, because I think even in my own heart, I had to check my heart this week and say, am I insecure about talking about money to my church? And I would say there's a level of that that, yes, I think so. Uh, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but um, we'll get to that. I'll, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the whole reason why I think there's insecurity there. It says Jesus is telling us, that there's something in our lives, in our everyday lives, that we need to understand how to hold. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with me, because this, again, illustrates for us that we have a great opportunity to illustrate that in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, 
God is supreme, not our money. Um, the Apostle Paul tells us how to live, and this has to do with living eschatologically. In other words, living in light of eternity, living in light of heaven, living in light of the fact that you belong to, the, to, to another age. We are spiritual people. We are citizens of heaven. And it, that is reflected in the way that you give. That is reflected in the way that you buy stuff, in the way that you hold stuff, in the way that you own stuff. First uh, Corinthians 7.30, it says, Be, a, be as though, be, uh, those who weep, this is what he's telling us, be as those that weep, but he says, but though we, as though we do not weep. Sorry, I got that all mixed up. I should have just read it. He says, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And at this point, it's almost like, what is he talking about here? Rejoice, so don't rejoice. You weep, but as not like you don't weep. What is he getting at? And then he says this, and those who buy, you know, Black Friday's coming up and everything, all these holiday sales are coming up, right? You see all the people lined up outside of Best Buy, elbowing each other for the big flat screen television. He says, but buy as though they did not possess. Wow, what a challenge in our materialistic age that we live in. What a challenge. They say to buy things that those, as though they're not even yours. In other words, don't, what he's saying here is don't let these things so capture your heart that you live for them, you're obsessed with them. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. And here is the theological principle that governs the entire worldview. For the form of this world is passing away. All the gadgets, all the trinkets, all the clothing, all the food, everything belongs to this present evil age which is passing away. And that's why we do not hold these things too tightly. There is an opportunity for us in our giving, in our generosity, in our selflessness to do this in such a way that we illustrate God's supremacy, that we see that God is more dependable, more satisfying, more lasting than any of those temporal things and anything they can do for us here. Next, that's the opportunity. The opportunity is to illustrate God's glory, God's supremacy in our giving. Next, I need to make you aware of a danger. The danger here, and what I want to call this from, this, from the supremacy of God in our giving to the seduction of money in the present evil age. This is a big one. Uh, you are obviously aware that Scripture time and again warns us about the danger of money. Uh, and of course, we need to qualify that because the money in your pocket, which you probably don't have none, you probably either have an app or a plastic card, and we call that money now. <laughs> How many of you have actual cash in your pocket? I don't. <laughs> Usually, Trish will have a couple bucks in her purse. Isn't it wild what we're living in now? I mean, a total, almost a completely cashless society. doesn't matter. The principle is the same. It's still dangerous. Um... The Bible warns us against our possessions. I've always found that to be totally amazing. Here's why. Turn to, uh, if you're still in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Go back there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Because it boils down to our obedience in the gospel. It's that important. It's that foundational. It is that critical. Um, our entire soul 
hangs in the balance as we talk about money and possessions. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Isn't that amazing? Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That is terrifying if you are in the money business. Meaning that you're just, you're, you're one of those people that you're not just working, let's say, um, you know, nine-to-five job. You're not just a blue-collar worker, but you actually have as your uh, 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 financial ambition to make lots of money, not just, uh, you know, sort of the standard of living, but you are, you are a cut above the rest in this way. You are, a matter of fact, maybe you belong to the kind of business where your entire purpose is to make as much money as possible. Is there anything wrong with that? No, not necessarily. But here we're being told, be careful, because maybe, and I think definitely I can say that you are in particular danger of having a divided heart, of having a divided loyalty before the Lord. Now, in Matthew, turn to Matthew chapter 19, because, uh, you know, a person can have a direct encounter with the living Christ and yet view the dollar more almighty than him. You can see that money is more valuable, more precious, more satisfying, more worthy of your devotion than Christ and his kingdom. And you know where I'm going. Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. And I thank God that he gives us these illustrations. Thank God that Jesus, when he came, he actually interacted with people in the real world. He interacted with bankers and tax collectors and slaves and freemen. And he interacted with employers and employees. And he interacted with military personnel. He interacted with, you know, prostitutes and sinners of every kind. And thank God for that, that he shows us these wonderful principles of the Christian worldview like this. This is the episode with the rich young ruler. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That should just land on us with great gravity. Jesus didn't really qualify that in many other ways other than just say how difficult, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if we just take, a, if we just take a, a, an honest appraisal of the way that our world operates, if you look at the ultra-rich and wealthy in society, whether it's just America or globally, you will not find very many committed Christians there. What you're usually going to find is that these are wealthy elites and their commitments lie elsewhere, not in Christ and not in his kingdom. Verse 24, again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? What an amazing question, right? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And, and then it is possible. I mean, I've sat at the table with a billionaire uh, over dinner, and I thought, this is amazing. This person reportedly has billions of dollars and is not just rich uh, materialistically, but he's rich spiritually. The entire time, I must say, 
uh, I don't know this person all that well. I won't even say his name, but I must say our conversation was, was revolving Christ. And I thought, wow, that's remarkable. So then this is true, that it is possible with God, but it's impossible uh, for us. How will rich people enter the kingdom of God? Only by a sovereign work of God's grace. Now, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, because you know what the Scriptures say. It is ultimately the love of money that is the crucial thing here. Uh, The love of money, we could say the idolatrous love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. All kinds. The rich young ruler went astray because he underestimated the power that possessions could have over his life. Um, We don't want to be like him. Uh, He was reckless. Um, He was naive about the power and the seductive power of finances and money and possessions. We We can't afford to be like that. We can't afford to be reckless, naive, irresponsible. No, we're called to be sober, vigilant. We're called to watch over our hearts from where issue all the issues of life. And so therefore, we're to be the complete opposite. Now, as it comes to the church, this is, this is so amazing. But the Apostle Paul has specific instructions for those who are wealthy and those who are rich in the church. But, but the reason I'm quoting this is because in this text, again, He presents to us the danger that our money poses. And that's to everyone. I'll get to that in a second. But look at what he says here. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. Let's begin there. He says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it, or out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Wow. Folks, this is is not... uh, We can't just ride this verse off with, well, this was the apostolic church, and we're a transitionary period, we went from old covenant, new covenant, this is the apostles, this is kind of like the book of Acts, and, you know, Pentecost, where they kind of laid all their possessions at the feet of the apostles, this is not communal living. We can't write any of this off. This is a weighty statement, and we need to fully appreciate what Paul is saying. With food and covering, with these, you will be content. Let me tell you, I, I thought I knew what poverty was, because... You know, growing up, going to Mexico my whole life, and then as a Christian doing mission trips down to Mexico, you know, I thought I knew what poverty was until I went to Africa. And I went to Uganda. You've heard me talk about this before, but I went to Uganda to minister to the Sudanese uh, uh, population in, in Uganda at Kiriandongo. And um, I thought I knew what poverty was. I did not know what poverty was. I did not know what part of it was until I was deep in the bush of Africa ministering to a people with no running water, no electricity, no roads, and definitely no 911. <laughs> so no ambulances, no doctors nearby. Matter of fact, the closest hospital, three to four hours away. And there I saw that this principle is absolutely right, that with food, and with clothes and with covering, with shelter, with these, let us be content. And, and I think that's what struck me when I returned back to the States. I was struck by the awesome fact that I could live like this. I could live with just a shirt on my back and just, you know, the straw, the, the straw uh, 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 top, that, the, the hatch that, that covered the house or whatever. You know, I, I can live like this. You know, taking a shower with a cup and a bucket. I can do this. 
I don't need running water. I don't need hot water. I certainly don't need the, you know, the shower head that tries to massage you. It doesn't work anyway, but you know what I mean? I don't need all the jets and the proportion, you know, all of that. I just need the most basic things in life. And I can be perfectly, you know, and, and if I'm honest a little bit, I was actually in many ways more content and happy. I was actually more happy being in that state. I remember coming back to the States. I, it was emotional for me. It was a part of me I didn't want to leave. I didn't care that I was surrounded by poisonous snakes and caterpillars and, and flying and insects that just could kill you at any moment. <laughs> that was nothing. It was like you could be content. After a while, you found out you can actually live like this and you're fine. America is a big lie. You don't need all the stuff you're seeing on the commercials, all the stuff you're seeing on the internet. You don't need all the stuff you see at the mall. You don't need all that stuff. Convicted yet? I am. Because he wants us to be careful not to be superficial people that are constantly in need of things, right? But contentment, beloved. Jeremiah Burroughs says, a man is never more like God than when he's content. Because that's what God is in his very essence. God is a content God. Going on here in Timothy, he says, those who want to get rich, notice the language here, those who want to get rich fall into temptation, not necessarily sin, but into temptation. So you are going to be presented with temptation that may be the person next to you who does not want to get rich. And this is not just a longing to get rich. This is a, I think this is more than that. This is a pursuit of riches. You fall into this temptation. And even potentially a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. There it is in all of its raw glory. This word from Paul is true. It is weighty. It is awful. Because what it's saying is, is that this is the danger that finances can pose in your life. Like the rich young ruler, they can spell eternal ruin. And this is why we have to be very careful. Verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some by longing for it. Notice the the language there. Of longing, of pursuing, of wanting to get rich, of longing for riches, they wander away from the faith and pierce themselves through with many griefs. Isn't it amazing that... I'll never forget... I was talking to Kirk Cameron a long time ago, and I asked him about what it was like growing up in Hollywood, all of that. And he told me once at breakfast, I had an opportunity to have breakfast with Kirk, Kirk Cameron, and I had a few questions for him. And one of the things he told me is that, you know, he's like, he told me, he's like, he's been to these parties where there's all the stars. Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger's there, Tom Cruise, all the people that we know of as celebrities. He goes, and I can't tell you how many of those guys pull me aside outside the party and tell me they're absolutely miserable. They're miserable in this life. They're depressed. They're on medication. They're miserable despite everything that they have. It's unbelievable. They, they pierce themselves through with many griefs. One of the things that riches, riches can do is they can make you vain. They can make you vain. They can make you lackadaisical. You can, you can live 
a life that is completely, you know, forget sober, delinquent in a sense. You can be completely negligent of spiritual realities because you're, you're, you're accustomed to living in great ease and convenience and comfort. But look, jump down at First um, Timothy, he says, in verse, uh, in verse 17, the same chapter, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. You see there? The vanity. Or to fix, instruct them not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. I mean, how many stockbrokers has committed suicide because they, they trusted in the stock market and when it went ooh, up and down and uncontrollable and they lost their life savings and they lost their family and they squandered their possessions and they lost their homes and they lost their cars and they lost their life because that's, what they, that's where their hope was fixed, was on those things. He says, but we need to fix our hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Isn't that an amazing balance? Is that once your heart is fixed on God, then the things that you have have a healthy effect on you. Then you actually have a healthy relationship with the things that you have. Namely, we can enjoy them. There's nothing wrong. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here today. I am not telling you you need to take a vow of poverty in order to be spiritual. No, that's not what I'm saying. However, depending on what God calls you to, He may call you to poverty. And you may have to be content with poverty. I mean, what are you going to do? Live in some of the most poverty-stricken parts of the world and live as a lavish exuberant, materialistic missionary? I don't think so. You have to be among your people. Um, That's why he says, you know, instruct them to do good. He says, instruct them, he says, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And so, many instructions for the rich, but just the fact that there is a great danger as well. Now, let me get to the last point because This is important. I I want us to really grasp this, that there's a great opportunity for us to glorify God in our possessions, in our finances, and in our giving. And there's also a great danger with money. If you're not being proactive, if you're not being uh, intentional about what you're doing with your money, how you're viewing your money, how you budget your money, all of those things, then the danger is there that you have to be aware of. Here's the last thing. The last thing is the satisfaction of the believer in giving. That's the application. So we go from the opportunity to the danger to the application, and this is the way that it applies. You know, it's by avoiding all these pitfalls um, and knowing the supremacy of God and our generosity that we can then find that our satisfaction in our personal giving and in the local church, uh, we can find it there. And I think, again, the reason why this is so practical for us today is because just look around. I mean, we have to be honest. When we're talking about finances and Christianity, there's a lot of baggage attached to that. There's a ton of baggage connected with that. Uh, this is what I was talking about earlier in terms of maybe the insecurity of the church to preach on finances. Not only because of the narcissistic, materialistic society that we live in, but also because of a low view of the local church. Uh, too many of us have too low of a view of the local church, and that affects our giving. Um, also, 
because, as Paul is going to go on to say, because we can develop, if we are not careful, we can develop a greedy, untrusting heart. And that's to say nothing about the prosperity movement. Oh boy, we know about, about that. That's to say nothing about prosperity teachers that really have turned this entire act of giving, which should be an act of worship, they've really turned it into a big charade, a mockery, fleecing God's flock uh, for personal gain. They've really virtually turned the whole ministry into a multi-level marketing scheme. It's, it's really sad, but you see it everywhere. I mean, it doesn't have to be the, it doesn't have to be the wild-eyed prosperity preachers on television. No, no, no. I'm here to tell you that this exists everywhere. Even the seeker-sensitive church down the street. I mean, it is all a financial scheme, folks. Don't get it wrong. If the pastor is not in the pulpit legitimately dispensing the knowledge of God, then what is he doing? Oh, I'm so angry about this. Furious, in fact. I clicked on one website. I won't tell you the church because I don't want to, but you know what I mean. I clicked on one website. and I said, okay, this is a big church. It sounds like a lot of people are going to it. Let me click and see what are they doing. I clicked on there. I forced myself to watch this sermon. And, and folks, okay, forget the pulpit. Forget the Bible. Uh, eliminate preaching. And just come up and do a big old inspirational type of talk. I can do it right now, and I'm going to do it for you, okay? <laughs> hey, guys, we've got a lot of great things to talk about today. I'm not kidding. That's the way the sermon starts, and that's the way it ends. And they might quote a couple verses in between. What do you know? Right? But in the end, it's usually stories about the pastor, stories about his marriage, the walk he went at night with his family and their dog. I mean, I'm talking about it's that shallow, it's that weak. You know all of this. But what I'm saying is that what is at the root of it, I believe, is what Paul forbids in 1 Timothy chapter 3 of a minister, that he not be out for sordid gain. Sordid gain. Which means the only thing you want out of the ministry is financial gain. I told you a story long ago about a, a boss that I had. In, uh, I was working construction, and this guy was um, over our all division of construction where I was working. Anyway, he's a real smart guy, very, very, very smart uh, guy. And uh, he, had, he cursed like a sailor. I mean, he just excelled, uh, even among the construction workers. He just excelled at his craft. And I about fell over and fainted when he told me that it was either, when he was telling me you know, a little background on his life, but he was saying that it was either get into management and construction or pursue work in the clergy, as a clergy. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, they make a pretty good living. I mean, I think the average clergy is making about 100000 a year. So, so it was either get into the ministry or do something like this. <laughs> like, this guy's dead serious. Looked at me with a straight face. He was not kidding. And folks, so many people approach the, the, the church that way. And it's sad. It's, it's really, really sad. It's exactly what Paul is warning against in many, many, many of his epistles. But really, you know, Andy Ralcorn, Andy, uh, uh, Al, Randy Alcorn, there you go, I was conflating the two. We have a book out there on the bookstore by him called The Treasure Principle. It's a good little book on, on finances. And I have his bigger book. It's called God, Money, uh, uh, Money Possessions, and Eternity. And uh, in that book, he talks about the statistics of what's going on today in evangelicalism with the whole issue of giving. The statistics are staggering. 
He's talking about the fact that, according to many of the surveys, and I don't know how reliable they are, but at evangelicalism at large, yes, outside of the Reformed faith, but evangelicalism at large, he gave staggering statistic after staggering statistic. The conclusion is this. He says 40, 40 to 50% of giving in evangelicalism is down. Is down. And he even goes on to say it's something like 40% of Christians give nothing to the church. And, and we can, you know, we, we obviously, well, that's probably not a reflection of true biblical churches. Okay, fine. But it does show you the social consciousness in which we live. That giving is not important to many Christians. That giving is not what Scripture says it is. That it is an act of worship. That it's communion with God. That it's a reflection of your heart. All of those things. The result is an evangelical mess. Really, it's an ecclesiastical pee and shell game. A lot of people are going there for all the wrong reasons. We live in it. Let's face it, you guys. We live in a sensationalistic generation um, that really trivializes and really perverts the whole issue of money. Nothing new. In, uh, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 5, the, the, uh, the prophets saw this. Jeremiah talks about the people. The people didn't want truth in the church. They wanted, they wanted a character up there. They wanted somebody to get up there and just say whatever made them feel good. Okay? And it even says they prophesied falsely. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31, it says the people love it so. Incredible. You ever wonder how these people are going into these terrible churches, these seeker-sensitive churches, these, sh- these churches which are really not churches, but it's just a big game? How are they going in there week after week? You know, Jesus saw the same thing in uh, the cleansing of the temple. Time and again, Jesus pointed this out, saying that they had turned the house of God into a den of thieves. Total, total sensationalism. Total um, just marketeering of the church of God. And the apostles saw this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, a verse that you should know. The apostle Paul, for biblical ministry, he says, you must renounce peddling the word of God. And, and there, the word to peddle literally speaks of using God's word for money, period. Right? And so what he's saying is, you cannot do that if you want to have a true biblical ministry. Absolutely not. Time is failing us. But let me just bring us to the verse that we began with. Let's look at that again. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 7. Let's go there again and just walk through what Paul is talking about here. Because here we find several principles. And now we're getting to brass tacks. Now we're getting to every member in our church and the issue of giving, which I really wanted to... I really wanted to bring to bear upon our congregation to say, do we reflect the principles that are found in this text? This is, I believe this is a timeless truth. This is a nomic passage, meaning that it has a universal scope of application. It, it doesn't just apply just to Paul's collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem that is reflected in the context here. It is a general application, a general truth. You guys there? 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Several things. I want to point out several things. Number one, the obligation. The obligation. Notice the, notice the specificity here. Each one must. You see that language there? 
In other words, what Paul was saying is that it cannot be that 20% of the church is flipping the bill for the rest of the church. It cannot be that 20% of the church is faithful in giving and the other 80 are just kind of reckless and sort of irresponsible with their giving. Absolutely not. It's that each one of us has to take ownership of the obligation to give and to support the local church. Now, I'm going to get to the local church and I think you almost feel like I've left it for last, but it's absolutely important. Just to see the same principle, look at Galatians chapter 6, uh, verse 6, or I can just read it to you. The Apostle Paul speaking essentially in the same breath as this context, although here it's a different context. Here it is definitely talking about the general operative principles in the local church, in the regular giving of the church, when he says, the one who has taught the word, that's you, is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. That's me. And that is difficult for many people to say. What this is saying is, you have to share financially with me. And aren't you glad that I am not a prosperity preacher? (laughs) Oh, I wish I could take zero money for what I do up here. This is... You have no idea how grateful and just approaching this whole sermon, sitting there last night thinking, man, I am so grateful to God. He's taking care of me for the past 10 years. God has taken care of me financially. My wife and I, sometimes I don't even know how we make it, but we make it. And, and, and he's taking care of me lavishly, taking care of me in the ministry. I am so utterly grateful for that. And I thank each and every one of you for your generosity towards this church and particularly to me. Uh, It's an incentive encouragement for me to go on. Apparently, people still want me back next Sunday. Okay, I'll keep coming back. He says, do not be deceived. Here is the universal principle. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will reap. In other words, if we're sowing uh, sparingly, we will reap sparingly. I've talked about this principle of sowing and reaping before, but it applies here as well. It's amazing. We're all obligated. It's every single one of us. Every single member and every single membership meeting that we have, we tell you that part of your membership obligation is to support the local church financially. And we mean that. And we hope that you will take that serious. If anything else today, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you what a glorious privilege it is to worship God with our finances. To put him to the test. Provide. God will bless you. See, this is why we are so afraid to talk about this point right here. That if you are faithful in your giving, guess what I can say with all dogmatic conviction? That God will will provide and he will bless you. He'll take care of you. It has been my experience over the past 10 years and more in pastoral ministry and, 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 and please jot it down, write it down, meditate on it later. But it has been my experience throughout the years that the families that are usually struggling financially are the families that are usually the most sporadic in their giving. Galatians chapter 6 is true. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. But there is always a provision and even an abundance of provision at times for those who will be faithful to their obligation to give. 
Uh, Notice the nature of the giving in the next phrase. He says that every one of us has to purpose as though this gets to the intent. So not just the obligation for every single one of us, but now the intent. We each have to purpose to do this. So stay with me because this is a little bit longer of a sermon today because this is something that needs to be preached in our church. In other words, our giving, what does it look like? Do we sit and talk about it? Do we pray about it with our spouse? Do we think over it when we bring it to church, when we have a check filled out, or however that you give? What does that whole act look like, especially in your heart? Have you purposed specifically what to do? Do you have a game plan, or is it just sort of haphazard or spontaneous? You know, one of the things in our church that we do not do is we do not demand that you tithe. In other words, you better give a tenth or else. Right? That's not, I don't believe that's part of the new covenant. But we do believe you must give something. Uh, we're all going to differ as to the, the, the amount that we give to the local church, but we can't differ in giving. We all must give something. If you're not, something is wrong with the heart. And so Paul is saying, purpose in your heart. Um, you can see this, uh, for example, if you turn to uh, chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. Just go there very quickly. Chapter 8, 2 Corinthians. You see this in the Macedonians. When it says that they gave out of their, you know, out of their poverty and um, out of their abundance of joy, all these things. And it says in verse 5, it, look at verse 4, they begged Paul to give begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. Now that's an interesting phrase, giving yourself to the Lord. What is he talking about? I think what he's saying is that they, first, they, had, first they, they, they did business with God. They got on their knees. They went to the Lord in prayer. They prayed about it. They meditated about it. They thought it through. It wasn't this sort of reckless, haphazard, at the end of the day, sort of, you know, it's not, you know, we go shopping, we eat at the restaurants we want, we, we spend money the way we want, we live at the standard that we want, and at the end of the day, maybe I'll think about what kind of money I want to give to the church. No. As a matter of fact, this was a priority for them, and it should be for us as well. Next, look at the motive as well. Uh, This is spoken in two ways. There's a positive and a negative aspect here in the motive because if you go back to chapter 9, he says, not grudgingly or under compulsion. You know what that means? Don't make the pastor chase you around so you give to the church. (laughs) It just means it shouldn't be a burden. Like all of God's other commands, they are not burdensome to the spirit-filled believer who is genuinely regenerate in their heart and who is genuinely seeking to walk in obedience and being pleasing to the Lord. This is not a burden, it's a joy. He saved us. He saved us from an eternity in hell. And we are going to withhold what is His anyway? Can you think of the audacity of that? I don't want to chase anybody around. Now, as a pastor, we will say this. We've told you this before, and I'll say it again. Pastor Lynn and I, we have structured our church in such a way that I have no earthly idea what anyone in here gives to the church. 
I've never seen your offering. I've never seen the page. I've never seen the check. I've never seen the amount. But there's one thing we do know. If you give or not. And if you do not give, as your shepherds, we are concerned enough about you to confront you on this sensitive subject and find out, dear brother, dear sister, why aren't you tithing or giving to the local church? You know what I mean by tithing, but just giving to the local church. Maybe you do want to tithe. Fine, I won't forbid your conscience. But why isn't there giving? Why isn't that act of worship there? If it's not, we will have to uh, uh, confront you and find out because that's usually indicative of a heart issue. There's something wrong. If there's nothing going on there, last of all, not just negatively, it should not be under coercion or compulsion. It should not cause you grief because the word grudgingly is the Greek word lupe that just means grief or pain. It shouldn't be painful. When the subject of giving comes up, it shouldn't be, "Ah, I don't like talking about that. Why not? Why not if we give out of a cheerful heart? It should be. It should also be worshipful. Look at the end. God loves a cheerful giver. That's the genuine act. That's what genuine worship looks like. It is it consists mainly of joy. Of joy. A, cheer, a cheerful giver is also like God. Uh, quickly turn with me in chapter 8, verse 9. Isn't it amazing that the Apostle Paul, he took the concept of giving and he brought it up to a divine analogy. Two, as a matter of fact. The first has to do with Christ. The second has to do with the Father. First, Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Isn't that amazing? The gospel is the basis of our giving. That is where the logic and the rationale of our giving comes from. It's from the idea that Christ, who was in an eternal habitation of luminous glory with God, left those riches, that wealth, that glory, that bounty, and came down in the form of a servant. So much so that it says... The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head at night. He became homeless for us so that we would forever dwell in His house. Think about that. That's the, that's the example of generosity that we should come to when we give. And I know I'm putting a lot of pressure on you so that you walk up to the box during the service at some point, and you're about to put your offering. I don't expect you to have all this theology. you know. And if you do, let me know, because it's probably going to be interesting to see. I know it's a lot to put on you, but this is what he gives it. And then look at, look at uh, chapter 9, verse 15, how he ends the entire section with this glorious verse. He says, after considering all this theology on giving. He says, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. What is that? What is God's indescribable gift? I was talking to somebody before the service about this. What is His indescribable gift? Well, people, de- 
people debate. Is it, is it Paul talking about the indescribable gift that had come in from the churches uh, to, uh, the, for the need, the, his collection for the need of the saints? Is that the indescribable gift? Most commentators say that the indescribable gift is probably Christ himself. That God gave his only son as the ultimate model of sacrificial, selfless, selective giving. Now let me end with selective. This is very purposeful because I want to make a case that above everything, brothers and sisters, our obligation is to the local church. I find it amazing how many Christians I still talk to that don't understand this. That they think that my, in terms of giving, my primary obligation is to give to what I want to give to. So if I, there's a ministry online or on television or on radio or, or, or on the internet or somewhere, or you want to you wanna give towards a, a, a certain type of ministry or a missions agency or something like that, um, no. I would say that primarily the giving of the believer is selective in that the primary means of giving us to the local church. Uh, this, is what I, this is what I mean by when I started out talking about the low view of the local church, is that sometimes we have too low of a view of what the church is. Brothers and sisters, the local church is God's only authoritative institution on planet earth. If you want to come talk to me about that later, go ahead. But God did not found a parachurch organization. He founded the church. Jesus Christ did not die for a missions agency. He died for the church. You know what I mean. He didn't, he didn't want to establish all these corporations, Christian corporations, that Christians you know, start giving money to. Now, can you do that? Of course. There's liberty to, if you want to, in the overflow of your liberality, give to other ministries on top of what you are giving faithfully at church, then fine. But let me just state for the record that before God, our, you know, our God-given duty is to the local church first. And then everything is auxiliary to that. And that is... That is what it means for a Christian to operate within a proper, healthy Christian worldview in the area of giving. Is there more to say about it? Yes. But there are other topics that I want to hit. So um, we are going to have a meeting here in the next couple of weeks. I really encourage you to come and be a part of that. It's very simple. Our finances, praise God, our finances in our church are fairly simple. We pay rent, we pay the pastor, and we pay for a few expenses. Praise the Lord. I don't know how some of these mega churches do it. Man, this is why I'm praying our church stays small. <laughs> is that like the ultimate ministerial suicide or what? Lord, can you please keep Heritage Grace small? We pray against the spirit of church growth. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we don't pray against the spirit of church growth, but we pray that you would grow us quality that you would grow us in maturity, spiritual maturity. And for so many of us in this church, we need this reminder. And I'm so grateful that for the majority of of our members, uh, the generosity we talked about is there. And that there is genuine gospel-centered generosity. And there is faithfulness to your local church in giving. 
Now, for those that maybe struggle in this area, they're insecure, they lack trust, they, 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 they wonder, how can I give when I don't make barely enough to make it myself? Give them the right balance, Lord. Give them a proper view. Help them to assess. Make them responsible enough to be able to look over their finances and see how they can glorify you in a way that pleases you. It's not for man that we do this. It's for you. And so I pray in the spirit of the Macedonian church that they would give themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.